welcome to How I Got Here, the inside stories of startups and innovation in travel and transportation with your hosts, FocusWire's Kevin May and Mozio's David Litwack. Hello there, a very warm welcome to How I Got Here. This is a Focus by Amozio's weekly podcast where we talk to the entrepreneurs in travel, transportation and hospitality. Uh, this week, we warmly welcome Joe Spearman. He's the CEO and founder of Localer, a platform for people to find experiences through recommendations from locals. Uh, the company was created in 2013, has raised almost $6 million in funding. Uh, since its formation, Localure has established a presence in over 200 countries and has branched out into publishing a magazine, launched a podcast, and works with the likes of JetBlue, Lyft, Nike, and Match.com on their ad campaigns. Uh, prior to founding Localure, Spearman worked at Bizarre Voice, was a speechwriter at the Department of Homeland Security, maybe something we should ask you about in your origin story, and is now also involved in a number of other advisory initiatives such as Peopleism, Capital Factory, and he's also the chair of the Sustainability Council at Petal. Thank you so much uh, for joining us. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Okay, uh, those that are regular listeners will know we always start these off with the first question. And it's the same question every time. And that is, can you tell us how you got here? It's a great question. Um, I've listened before and have heard many answers. And what, what I would say is, I got here by learning how to respond to adversity. Um, I don't think there's a, there's a single thing that defines me as an entrepreneur or defines local or as a company any more than how often we've faced adversity and how often we've been able to overcome it. Um, I think, you know, it local or started as a really simple idea. It's, it was, wouldn't it be cool if when you traveled, you knew where locals go instead of always knowing where tourists go. And back in 2012, it was much, much easier to find out where tourists go, um, going to different review sites and whatnot than to find out where locals go. So it started as a very simple idea here we are eight years later and we're still doing the same thing in the sense that, you know, the same type of person who would have used local or eight years ago when we debuted right after, right before South by Southwest 2013, they were someone who was in a new city. And for the first time, maybe they didn't have friends who lived in that city and they wanted to know where to eat, drink, shop, get coffee, you name it. Um, and now we have pretty much, we're serving the same traveler. The only difference being that now we have introduced a subscription model. So before people were maybe not using Localer until the day of you know, their arrival. And now they're using it. I mean, literally we have people telling us about trips they're planning to take a year from now. So we've just kind of moved our use case back further. But I, the subscription play was really a response to, to the pandemic, much the same way that over the years we've had to respond to um, my lead investor passed away, unfortunately, unexpectedly a couple of years ago. My co-founder left the business. Um, we've, uh, you know, struggled to, to secure institutional VC funding in part because of the, the lack of funding for Black founders. So there's been a number of different hurdles and, and, and things that we've had to overcome. And I'm, I'm glad to be here eight years later, still kind of going after the same mission, serving the same traveler. Okay. Thank you, Joe. Uh Plenty of things there that you said that we will come back to. Um, but first of all, if you can take us right back, you were working at Bizarre Voice, mm -hmm. a very heavily involved pre and post IPO. Mm -hmm. What was the point in your 
time there that you thought okay i've got an idea for something else was it while you were there was it yeah at some other point yeah no it was while i was there i mean even before my time at bizarre voice um which not everyone knows bizarre voice was um and still is one of the leading companies for ratings and review software um so even before my time there i was an entrepreneur i i owned a social media consulting agency in austin um with clients like fedex I owned a sneaker boutique in downtown Austin. So I was, I had experience as a local business owner. And then I created and ran the first ever fashion part of South by Southwest festival. And that was where I got my first experience with traveling that we had tens of thousands of people. I mean, I, I had an event in 2011 that had 15,000 people attended in two days. And then in 2012, we had 22,000 people. So wow. these are big events attracting mostly visitors yeah. Um, so when I went to Bizarre Voice, I, I was recruited by the, the COO and the CEO of Bizarre Voice at the time. And they were like, we know you're an entrepreneur, even if you're only here for a year, you know, we're about to go public, um, you know, set up ourselves to go public and we think you could be helpful. And so I, I, I kind of put my businesses on the, on the, the side and I came in house as the director of operations there. And before the IPO, I was mostly just kind of like this Swiss army knife knife of the operations unit. It wasn't until after the IPO really that I transitioned toward travel um, because we started getting clients at Bizarre Voice, like Starwood Hotels, IHG Hotels, um, the, some of the big cruise lines. So we were starting to get this kind of growing travel vertical, and but we didn't as a company have a spelled out strategy for how to work with them. And so I kind of became the person that would go out and do customer discovery, um, meeting with these companies and executives to learn more about their businesses and travel. And while I was doing that, you know, again, this is 2012. And so Airbnb was obviously rising. Uber was rising, but you could kind of see to me, at least the writing on the wall in terms of the future of travel and how much more focused people would be on local. And, um, and so I just, I felt like from all those conversations, I was hearing the, the commonality was that there was this this uh, desire for influence like these companies were like how do we influence travel behavior and i realized it wasn't in transactions it wasn't in building quote unquote a better mousetrap it wasn't like being able to book them faster or sell them more stuff it was really being able to create more trust and authenticity around who was influencing their travel and so that's where the light bulb went off uh, in 2012 and so i, I literally I, I cashed out my stock um about six months after the ipo and spent four months uh, with my co-founder kind of incubating it. He also left his job at Bizarre Voice. Um, and, um, and we started with this idea. The name of the company at the time wasn't even localer. Um, and so we tried to buy a domain for the old company name. And the guy selling the domain was originally, he was like, oh, I'll sell it to you for $5,000. And we were like, oh, that's kind of steep. But we convinced our first investor that he would give us $5,000 to buy the domain. And then I don't know if the guy, the guy with the domain Googled me or something, but I think he saw that I was at Bizarre Voice and they had just gone public. So I think he thought I was more wealthy than I am. <laughs> and so the next time he was like, oh, no, it's, uh, it's $150,000. And we were like, oh, never mind. <laughs> and so the next day we like came up with a new name of the company. And, um, and yeah, that was like, I think that was late December of 2012 or maybe early January. Are, are you allowed to tell us what the name of that domain was? That you oh were yeah, to it buy? was um, it was Travel Us. So okay. like, and and we 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 
we want we like the word us being in it, but what we realize is that it kind of rung out as travel US, which uh, we didn't like because people would be like, oh, it's so US centric. And then obviously we landed on this name Localer, which now people think we're a French company because it's like, oh, Localer. <laughs> <laughs> That's very true. Okay. So it's quite a leap still to going from working from a recently publicly listed company to finding someone within that organization that you have some affinity with, i.e. the person who became your co-founder. Mm-hmm. It is a leap, as I say, to go from that to launching the company. So domain name issues aside and stuff like that, I mean, how did you mentally prepare yourselves as entrepreneurs to take that leap? Yeah, well, I would say the top two things that that come to mind and, and I think came to mind even then were one, I inherently knew that this was the first business that I was going to have to raise a lot of money for. Um, Mm-hmm. And so I was immediately, I mean, very early on, I mean, even before we had the business model fully flushed out, I, I knew, okay, this is going to be something we're going to have to raise capital for. So it, unlike, like I said, I started a sneaker boutique. I had a social media consulting firm. I had these other businesses, but they didn't require that type of capital raise. Um, so I knew inherently that this business had to look different in order to do that. Um, and that's in part why I had a co-founder because he had more of a product and design background, whereas I have more of like a operations marketing background. Um, so I knew that I independently couldn't do this. And I, he knew that as well. And whereas, you know, with my sneaker store, I didn't need to have a co-founder for my sneaker store, you know, or my social media company. Um, so, so it really helped me see, okay, I'm, I don't know. I don't have all the answers going in and we're not going to be able to, you know, necessarily bootstrap this on our own the way that I could of other things. So, so pretty early on, I remember um, Capital Factory is kind of a tech incubator startup hub here in Austin. And um, my co-founder, we locked ourselves, we basically locked ourselves in there over a weekend and hashed out the business plan um, and all of our assumptions around the business. It was like sometime in early, late 2012. Um, and I remember writing on the the chalkboards or the 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 dry erase boards in there all we had we kind of we agreed on about maybe 70 percent of things but for the 30 percent that we didn't agree on um we had a a friend of mine fly in from san francisco and he's kind of more he's a he's been a cfo for several venture backed startups so he's not a co-founder um he's not but he's highly strategic understands the money part of the startup and so we brought him in so that for that 30% that we weren't in alignment on, we could kind of have him be the judge. So he kind of, he literally like, I remember calling him and saying, Hey, I need you to fly to Austin for a weekend. And he was like, what for? I was like, I can't really tell you. I don't want to make you sign an NDA. Um, he's like, okay, let me ask my wife. And he asked his wife, she's like, yeah, okay. Yeah, you can go. So he flew down and we spent the weekend, like just hashing out all the assumptions about the business. Um, so, th- so that was a piece. And then right after that weekend, I made a list of 12 of my old clients, former college professors, former bosses. Um, and that was my list of people who I wanted to invest. And I spent the next pretty much six weeks uh, meeting them in person or calling them and, and pitching them all. And eight of those people ended up investing. So I think, you know, there's been a lot of people who've kind of used that, you know, uh, this kind of meet up with locals kind of theory and um, have tried to explore and make this into a real business. And you mentioned you guys have been around for eight years and um, you've recently pivoted. So I'm curious, what is it that you got? What's the insight that you think you guys have that like 
the others are missing about local engagement because there's there's a lot of dead bodies in your sector of the industry. And um, yeah. I feel like you also recently just pivoted and you kind of blew up what you were working on for seven years and started something completely new. And um, mm-hmm. clearly there's some insight there that um, that you came to. And um, yeah, like, what is it? Yeah, you're, you're totally right. I mean, there this is there is a graveyard of startups in the travel space with the word local like in their mission statement or company name. I mean, it's, it's, it's incredible. The thing that I think has um, that we've come upon that, that has helped us. Um, I, I think it's, we are not a product company um, at all. We are not a product company. And I think every other company that's been in this space, they want it to be a product company. They wanted to be a Facebook, a, a, an Apple, a, a company that was led by product. We are a community company. We've always been led by the community of people that contribute the content. So we started with 12 of my friends in Austin recommending their favorite locally owned places in Austin so that when people came for South by Southwest, they would know where to go. And now we have locals in 200 cities around the world still doing the same thing, which is literally they're recommending their where they get coffee, where they have dinner where they go on dates, where they shop. And so having that singular focus on community has made it so that whether we're doing a print magazine or a mobile app or a subscription service, we're still inherently doing the same thing, which is leveraging uh, this, this community to provide local insight. And so I, I think it's it's helped us because not being a product company has also um, allowed us to be really capital efficient um, where, you know, you have a lot of those dead bodies in this space that raised 20, 40, hundred plus, whatever million dollars. Um, and it, truthfully, when you're thinking about local, I don't know if travelers want a standalone quote unquote local product. I think what they want is more of those transactional travel products they use, whether that's Airbnb booking, Google flights, who names it, you name it to have bring in more of that local into those those experiences. So we've really not spent all the millions of VC money trying to build uh, a better mousetrap. We've really just said, you know what, these companies, you know, the Expedia's, the bookings, they don't really have community. Um, let's do that because that's the thing that they're they're not doing. And that's the thing that we can do to differentiate ourselves. So you said something interesting there actually. Um, quick background about seven years ago, um, my company Mozio put out a, a, a travel scape. It was an online travel scape, and actually, mm-hmm. the precursor to Focuswire of uh, T News, mm-hmm. Carrie did. Um, we're actually in the process of updating it, and um, one of the modifications I, I did was I eliminated the travel inspiration category because all of the travel inspiration startups went out of business. Yeah. And uh, previously, there was a travel inspiration category and a travel media category. And the point I'm making, I'm writing up a little article to it, is that those two things are now one and the same. Like, um, I think the only players in travel inspiration have basically realized it's a content play. It's a, it's a media yes. play. And they're not building technology around it anymore. I think Trip Scout or some other guys raised a bunch of money. And if you look at what their big selling point is, we, is, we have 20 million Instagram followers. <laughs> I, I fully agree. Yeah. Fully agree. So it sounds like that's, you know, I, I think I'm maybe reading part of what you said back to you here a little bit, but like, are you making a transformation then to a, you know, a full media company then in, in, in short? You know what? I would say it's too early to tell. Um, and the reason why I say that is because, you know, we are at a really interesting juncture where, you know, there, you know, you've, I'm sure you've heard this phrase a million times, you know, people partner, they build or they buy. And 
for us, we are, we're in a stage where we're not going to be a buyer, um, but we could partner, we could sell. Um, and inherently the, what, what that means is what we're trying to do is think about what is, what are the best use cases, um, to layer on top of, or maybe even underneath what we do. So we're the tip of the spear. Like we, we are inspiring people. We are telling people about destinations, even before they're maybe making the transactions before they're booking the flights, the hotels, et cetera. And so where are there people that maybe would benefit from what we have? So it could be, you know, it could be a train provider. Uh, it could be a, a credit card provider that we partner with. It could, I mean, as you've seen from our partners, we've partnered with JetBlue Airlines. We've partnered with Match.com. We've partnered with Lyft. We've partnered with Nike. So what we're realizing is that what we do, yes, it's in travel, but the, the media part of what we do isn't in travel. The media part of what we do is around inspiration and discovery. That's pretty agnostic about industry because whether you're, if you're a dating app, you don't partner with local or because it's travel you partner with local or because we have great content about cities that people maybe want to take dates in. So I think what we're realizing is we have one foot firmly in travel, which is the type of content we have, but then we have one foot in media, which is where can this content exist? And we're learning that that doesn't have to be through this narrow lens of travel. It could be uh, dating. It could be ride sharing. It could be apparel, you name it. Con- like content businesses are kind of traditionally like well hard to monetize i mean i think even like the guys mm-hmm. like buzzfeed and all these players are like feist right like they're laying off people left and right every mm-hmm. year or two as they vacillate between uh, different things and i think of like you know of friends who founded arrival guides right and like these are like there's yeah. been a lot of people who've tried tried to do this and and uh, you know just playing uh, devil's advocate here like yeah. you know how does this become a, a real business? And and you and I think this is a good segue actually into something that I think a lot of industries asking yourselves around subscription. Like, why is someone going to pay a subscription? I think a lot of us kind of ra- yeah. raise an eyebrow at TripAdvisor's idea that we're just going to pay one OTA to, uh, subscription when when there's 25 other OTAs that probably have a good, good enough prices. Yeah. And like, I'm curious. You know, that's clearly you know part of the answer is you guys you're charging subscription. But I think let's get at to like why would someone buy a subscription mm-hmm. uh, versus just browse travel and leisure or something like that and travel yeah. and try to find local yeah. recommendations? I think that's a great question. I mean, part of how we arrived at the place that we're in today is, is kind of trying to answer that question, which is what is the, what is the thing that we have that's distinct? And what we've realized is we, you know, all the big travel companies, they pretty much have line of sight on the same tens, if not hundreds of millions of travelers. Um, there, I, again, I don't think travelers are saying they need a better mousetrap. They don't need a new app. They don't need a new site. Um, really what they're, what they're looking for are complementary um, things to, to the, the things that they're already comfortable with. People are already comfortable booking a place on an Airbnb or booking a flight on, you know, Expedia or booking that type of thing. Um, so we're not trying to reinvent that. I think what we're trying to do is say, we know that at the end of the day, your actual experience in the place that you're going for the first time, especially is shaped by the people in the perspective that you encounter. And if you have friends 
in a new city, then that's great because your friends will then share where they go. They'll help shape your experience. But if you don't, which is often the case with our subscribers, then in essence, our our community ends up being like that friend that's that's emailing you um, their, their 10 favorite restaurants and shaping your experience. So I think the differentiation is um, fundamentally if you are a traveler and you want to kind of have that feel of a friend telling you where to go, um, but you don't actually have the friend um, and you're also not wanting to do yet another transaction, which I think a lot of the experiences businesses are doing, like in terms of like Airbnb experiences or Kluke or Get Your Guide. Yes, you're going to meet a local, but you're paying a local. So you're you're literally still doing a transaction, just like when you booked your flight or your hotel. Whereas for us, you're not doing a transaction in order to, to get that insight. You are a subscriber and then you it's it's kind of always on. So you're always going to have access to this almost like friend group. I always say I'm 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 Kevin Bacon and, and you know what do they say? Six degrees of separation. No <laughs> localer in our community is more than four degrees removed from me. So it's it still is to this day, even in 200 cities, this big almost like friend group, because even like we just launched in India, the person in India was recommended, I think, by someone in um, uh, Hong Kong who was recommended by someone in New York who was, you know, and it's so everything ties back to that first set of 12 or so people in Austin. Um, so it's we've maintained the kind of curation, authentic element to it without trying to, again, become a product and, and use venture capital scale to become this almost like monolith of like whatever whatever type of person you are, whatever kind of tri trip you're taking, um, we're going to give you an algorithm answer. I, I'm curious if we can continue the graveyard metaphor for a moment. Yeah. <laughs> when, you're, when you've been wandering through that cemetery and reading the gravestones of those companies that are buried there, what have you learned from them that you've applied to Locala and say, yeah. right, let's definitely not do it like they did because, yeah. that's, you know, they're now six feet under and we're still walking through. Yeah. I mean, you know what? And here's the thing. Like I, I was telling someone this the other day, I feel like as an entrepreneur, personally, I am probably the most successful failed entrepreneur. <laughs> and what I mean by that is we are, I, I, I'm, I've succeeded, you know, we're still going, we're still growing. Um, but I've also failed in the ways in which I failed is that, um, I wasn't able to go out and raise tens of millions of dollars in institutional venture capital. Um, I wasn't able to go out and hire dozens, if not hundreds of employees to build what we've built. And so that's where I failed. I think where I've succeeded is that as a response to that, we've taken those lessons from that graveyard and said, okay, we let's not do that. So we didn't overraise. I think that's one of the biggest things that happens in this space. Mm -hmm. I think it's so common in this space that a company gets a you know one to three million dollar seed round, maybe super early, um, and then maybe they get you know a Series A, maybe even a B, and, and by the you know three four years in, they've already raised twenty to forty million dollars. And the average traveler doesn't know who they are. And that's and what happens is you're in this situation in that position, I think, where you have, let's say, I don't know, you have 40 to 70 employees. Your burn rate is in the hundreds of thousands of dollars, if not higher. And you're maybe like like uh, like David mentioned, monetization is difficult in this space. 
So now you're in this situation where you you're on this hamster wheel where you have to raise your next round pretty soon and you don't have as much to prove um, because travel is a very, very flooded space. Um, and then it's also um, if you have a high burn rate, then you're going through the cash really quickly. So for us, not being able to go out and raise VC the way other founders were able to ended up helping us because we stayed really lean. I mean, even to this day, I think we burn less than $30,000 a month, less than $25,000 a month. Um, so we just, we just don't spend a lot of money. Um, and, and then the other thing that we've learned, I really think back to, back to David's point is we really have to, we have to focus on what our, what our strength is and not focus on what we think the, um, we can't solely focus on what we think travelers um, are saying that they want. Sometimes we have to make our own calculated guesses. We have to still have our own value prop like that. That is from us and not just from looking at the behaviors of other companies. And that value prop for us has still been locals and locals alone are, have the best insight as to how to experience local. And I think, we have there's because there's been a lot of companies to come and go that have raised a ton of money and they you know we had companies and competitors who were like oh we're we're pulling in all this content about these destinations from the New York Times and from the, all these different travel content providers and you know and it's it looks big when it starts like I remember even a couple of years ago when when um before they did the subscription TripAdvisor they launched that kind of like newsfeed like yeah. thing that they did a couple of years ago. And it was pretty short lived in the sense of like how popular it was. Um, and they were pulling in content from Eater and New York Times and through all these different companies. And we, we looked at that and we didn't really react to it because we were like, they're still not pulling in content from locals. So like, that's where that's the heart of the answer as to what a traveler actually wants. So you could have you could have 10 million reviews from travelers. But if you have you know, but those aren't equal to having the most trusted source that is a local, in our opinion. So has that turned us into this big unicorn sized business with having that mentality? No. Yeah. Um, but it has it allowed us to not fall into and have those pitfalls of the companies that were trying to get there and not kind of trusting their own intuition and just chasing the, you know, whatever, keeping up with the Joneses or whatever the saying is. Um, then yeah, we haven't fallen into those pitfalls. Well, so- Oh, go on. I just a, a last one from me for a moment. And um, could you have launched this in a city that you didn't know really well? Because you're based in Austin, you have lots of connections and things like yeah. that. Was that an advantage then? You know what? It's so funny. Looking back, I think that we could have launched this anywhere, and I would I would probably argue that we should have, um, because it would have. I think it would have validated the concept more. Because I, I truthfully, I spent some of the earliest questions I got from investors, especially VCs in New York and Silicon Valley, um, when we were just in Austin, it was like, oh, like, is this an Austin thing? Because everyone knows Austin's, oh, keep Austin weird. It's really local. Is this an, just an Austin thing? And then even when we expanded to other cities like Houston and San Francisco, LA, New York, people, then the question was like, oh, is this just a millennial thing? Do only millennials want this content? And th there was always every, every time we expanded, it was like this another new set of questions. First, it was just, is this just an Austin thing? Is it just a millennial thing? Is this just a U.S. thing? And I think that if we had launched, especially looking back, if I probably could have redone it, I would have launched Austin 
And then I probably would have launched Mexico City because those cities have different dynamics in terms of travelers. Mexico City is obviously much more global. Austin is much more event driven. People come into town for South by Southwest often or maybe ACL Festival. Um, and so it would have allowed us to really prove out what we're doing for different types of travelers globally. Um, but we did what we did. For what it's worth, and considering a lot of our listeners are budding startup entrepreneurs, I feel like there are there's a certain class of investor that no matter what you do, they'll always want you to jump over one more hoop. So I know, like, I know. There's like I, I think that you know I, I want to you know give you more credit there, and that like uh, you know they're always going to be one more thing you should do for them to feel mm-hmm. comfortable, and they're never going to get there, and that's that's yeah. fine. Um, but you know what's interesting, um, I remember. I had a friend about seven, eight years ago that was starting a company that it was supposed to tell you um, uh, whether or not someone was going to leave their job based on big data analytics on a LinkedIn profile. And I remember thinking, I'm like, well, like you, there, that has like 0.1% of the relevant data to whether or not someone's going to leave their job. Do you know if she's pregnant? Do you know if he's having a midlife yeah. crisis? Do you know any of these different things? And I remember thinking there are so many people trying to build companies based on big data that the big data doesn't exist anymore. And like trying to like kind of... Um, I'd say almost computer science out the the human mm-hmm. involvement in things. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, I think that there are certain things, you know, and my, the business I'm starting right now, in addition to running Mozio is a social club startup. And one of our big th- things is like, there's no fancy algorithms. We're deploying it's friends of friends. And yeah. that's the, that's the ultimate algorithm. That's how, you know, people are getting along. It's friends of friends. It's very simple. Mm-hmm. It's human based and it's not, um, it's not rocket science. And, um, I think that's one thing that I think is attractive about what you've said is that you're kind of um, flying in the face of the uh, the uh, you know typical Silicon Valley. It must be a big data algorithm. It must be something computer science related mm-hmm. in order to be scalable, as opposed to understanding that social networks need to be social. And um, you know, last bit here, and I'm curious, and you know, how you're you're thinking about this. Um, you know, there, a great phrase I heard was social media is now all media, no, no social um, mm-hmm. recently and how it's just basically, you know, user generated content and the people is like completely out of it. And you see that with TikTok, where yeah. TikTok is now not even, you know, content generated by your friends anymore. Our social networks are no longer social. And, you know, my question to you and is a long one way of kind of getting there is, you know, what, uh, what does technology, what role does technology play in what you're saying, like in what you're building? Yeah, that's great. Well, one of the things in, this was a happy accident. There, there was a book in the late 90s by an entrepreneur. I think it was out of Boston named Bo Peabody. And it was this book called Lucky or Smart. And he talks about that kind of early internet age, mid 90s, where he built this thing and he ended up selling it, I think, to back in, back in the day when Lycos was a big search provider and they bought it for half a billion dollars or something. And the, what he talks about is he hired these developers to build this thing for him. And they ended up building something that was slightly different than what he wanted. And he could have chosen, he could have told them, no, don't do this. But he ended up, he ended up talking to one of his advisors and his advisor was like, Hey, are they having fun doing what they're doing? And he was like, yeah, he's like, well then let them keep going. And so we had a kind of a similar situation where we, um, we, we had a very good idea of the front end experience that we wanted when we launched local but we, so we told our developers and they, what they ended up doing was building a content management system, um, a back, uh, you know, back of house basically for a business to, to hold all this content and which we hadn't even thought of, you know, we were just like, well, they just publish it like, like a blog, like there, there doesn't need to be a CMS. So they built our content management system. And so now we have this awesome CMS 
that has like 44,000 recommendations in it. Thousands of people have submitted content and no one sees it. It's only, only my head of content and I really have access to it. Um, but it's, it's allowed us to, it, when we switched from an app driven company last year to subscription, the CMS was the thing that allowed us to do that because we could shut our site down and shut our app down and not lose our content. We had, we still have the database with all this content from all over the world. So now we provide that to subscribers via email. Um, and so it's much more of a call and response relationship with our users, as opposed to before they were just, they were having to kind of do the work themselves of finding this stuff. And now, um, now we do the work for them through our system. So I think that that's, that the biggest way that tech has helped us is we kind of, by luck, honestly, landed on this this database where we have literally thousands of pieces of content. Whereas, you know, there are millions of pieces of content on a TripAdvisor or a Yelp, but the customer has to go and find it. You know, if they're looking for a local perspective on a specific restaurant, they have to mine through first all the other reviews from people who aren't locals. And then they have to figure out like, okay, do I trust this local? What are the places that they like? Whereas for us, it's all we have is locals and then we give it it's call and response. We give it to you right when you ask for it. I'm, I'm trying to make a term stick that uh, maybe you can help me do it. Um, there's the creator economy. I'm trying to make the curator economy stick. Um, Ooh, I and, love that. Uh, yeah. Like I said it to someone who's like, what is that? And, and so apparently it's not entering the pop star popular lexicon yet. Um, but the idea <laughs> being that like, what if the West world gets more and more connected and, you know, and, you know, as cities, you know, are more and more of the melting pot, you know, previously curation was done for us in a lot of different ways, you know, in, in a mm-hmm. city, you little Italy actually was full of Italians and it was curated. Yep. And I think, you know, as you like, you know, if you traveled, you know, 30, 40 years ago, there was, you know, a lot more unique local experiences maybe available to you now. But as we just get more and more connected, I think curators are more and more important. Agreed. I mean, that's even even with the we've seen this rise in subscription businesses right around, especially in the media space, the morning brews, the hustle, the huddle, all these companies and a big role that they're playing is they're curating content, right? Because it's like, how do you decide if you want to subscribe to the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal or this or that? And that? And in a way, they're saying, we're doing that work for you. And then we're going to give you a daily email with, and we're going to curate the news for you. Now, there are downsides to that, especially around news media, because you can get be getting biased input. But, but from a curation standpoint, it's a skill that, you know, New York Times is not going to be the trusted source that curates for you uh, where, what the best Washington post story was that day. I mean, unless they, they, they create a new business model for that, but that's not their business. Right. So trusting someone like a morning brew or a hustle or a huddle would be much, much smarter. You said Joe, in your answer to our first question about adversity and, uh, one of the elements of that you said was your experience as a, as a black founder. And you also say on your, on your LinkedIn profile, you know, of equal importance, I'm a black founder in tech. Um, I think it would be important for us and also useful for our listeners for you to perhaps talk through some of your experiences as a person of color leading a travel or leading a tech startup, but in particular, a travel startup, because uh, sadly, you are few and far between. Thank you. Yeah, no, thank you for asking. I mean, I the reason why I write that on my LinkedIn profile and why I just I say that so so commonly is because what I've realized is 10, 20, 30 years from now, I hope that when I look at, the, first of all, the travel industry, 
is accounts for a pretty healthy percentage of not only of the United States' GDP, but globally, right? It's a big industry. Mm-hmm. Sadly, when you look at the upper echelons of the industry, it doesn't not all reflect the makeup of the world, despite how much fun this industry is, right? You would think it'd probably be one of the first industries to look the part of the world, um, but it doesn't. And so I would say I went, I started Localer with a lot of naivety about that reality. Um, and it was my experience fundraising and trying to go and raise institutional funding. Um, when we, we had, we hit certain benchmarks that many people communicated to us were the benchmarks you need to hit around monthly active users or cities and all these things to raise institutional venture capital. We just weren't able to, um, while many other startups, many of which are in that now in that graveyard, you mentioned, Mm -hmm. (laughs) um, were able to. And so, it was through that experience, honestly, like very painful experience over many years um, where I realized what my role is. My role actually, you know, do I want to be the most successful entrepreneur of all time? Yes. But one of the best ways that I can serve the tech industry and travel especially is to be one of those people who, you know, socializes the integration of this industry in a large part. You know, I think about, you know, people in baseball, you know, there's everyone knows Jackie Robinson at integrated baseball. Um, well, okay. Yeah. So in Jackie Robinson, <laughs> I'm shaking my head. Here yeah. <laughs> integrated baseball in the United States. Um, but no one remembers the names of the, the, the black in, uh, players who integrated all the other teams in major league baseball. Right. And what I realize is maybe that's going to be me. Maybe I'll be one of those names that people don't remember. Um, but if I don't, if I don't exist and there won't be someone else after me to go on and become like, you know, an all-star or a hall of famer or an MVP one day. Um, so what I've realized is I, I have two jobs. Job one is to pursue the mission that I set out with, with Localer um, in this industry. And that's really servicing the traveler. But then job two is, amplifying uh, my experiences as one of the few black founders in this industry so that other people after me have it easier and that they have better access to capital, that they have more people willing to be advisors for them, um, you know, things like that. So I've been doing both. And I'm, I'm, again, the thing that I'm most thankful for around uh, that local or still around in eight years is that in that eight years, we've seen the, the country here in the U.S. and in the world open up its eyes around some of these things more, right? Whether that's the events of the summer of 2020 with George Floyd, um, Black Lives Matter. So all these things have happened in tandem with Localer. So in a, in a lot of ways, um, I've been able to play a small role in, in, a, in, in kind of sharing those experiences from a tech and travel standpoint. It can take you back to something you said just a moment ago. You said a lot of your experiences, uh, negative or otherwise, have been around when you were raising money. I mean, is there something that you can reference or speak to that yeah. a, a specific example that might oh, demonstrate? Because yeah. yeah. you know, it would be um, useful for entrepreneurs listening and hopefully uh, embarrassing for maybe VCs that are listening. Yeah, well, well, what I would say is I, I had num- a number of people tell us when you get to hundred thousand, I mean, this is super early days of local. When you get to a hundred thousand MAUs, then we will write a check. 
you know, and we got that literally I would, we would get there three months or whatever later and I'd email them, call them, Hey, we made it to here. And they'd say, Oh, okay. Okay. Well let us know when you get to 250,000, you know, and to, to David's point, there's always one more hurdle you're going to have to cross. And it was like, they kept moving the goalpost on us. Um, so that was, a, that was a factor. I remember one time um, I, um, I met with two, two very prominent Silicon Valley. One is an investor. Well, actually they're both investors. One was a, a founder of a, a multi-billion dollar tech company. And I was, I was asked to come to San Francisco or to Silicon Valley to, to basically pitch them. And I, it's me and these two guys who are, you know, older white males in their fifties, multi-millionaires. I mean, one of them is definitely a billionaire. Um, and I never really got to pitch them. Um, they instead just traded stories about investments they've made. And one of the stories was about uh, Pinterest. And I think that one of the jokes that one of the guys made was uh, he was talking about how he kind of missed the opportunity to invest early in Pinterest. And the other guy said, oh, well, that's where you just if even if even if you don't get it, just give him two million dollars and see what happens. And meanwhile, I'm the third person in the room literally trying to raise one point five million dollars. And he's just so flippantly. It was like I wasn't even in the room at that point. It was just I was just a fly in the wall. And he was talking with his buddy. And it, it was just like, wow, this is really amazing that, you know, I don't even remember pitching them. You know, like it's just, yeah. I was just in there like, wow, this is, and he just so flippantly was like, oh yeah, just give him $2 million and see what happens. Do you sense um, from the experiences that you've had and what you want to achieve, going back to your answer just a moment ago, Joe, that things are getting better for black founders in tech and travel? The, in the, tech? Few, that, the, the few that there are? Yeah. In tech, yes, definitely in tech. In travel, no. Um, in travel, still where we are is if you, what I've seen is if you are a black founder, if your company is not, if the, if the mission of your company is not solely to the benefit of black travelers, then you will not get the kind of support that you know, a, a, a non-black founder would get doing a kind of a general market concept. I, I still see, um, you know, are you servicing black travelers? Are you servicing, you know, this type of thing? And I think that's kind of been one of the, our downfalls as local or is that we've, we've always been general market. We, just, we, I, you know, I, we've always served everyone. We have a very, we have one of the most inclusive communities you can possibly have. I mean, we have, you know, people of all, ethnicities all over the world. Um, but we definitely, I think, have suffered where other startups that are more rooted in, okay, we are black travel, um, have, have done better. I mean, even I look at that, I look at even like, you know, if you, if you look up, you, if you Googled, you know, the top black people in travel, just Googled that, for example, that list would be all people, you, you know, who are, deeply rooted in solely showcasing the experiences of black travelers, which I, that's great. Um, but that requirement isn't put on like white founders, for example, right. It's not put on Asian founders. It's not like, you know, you only have to get to serve these people. Um, so I think that that's, that's one of the things that's been difficult in, in this particular industry. Okay. Well, we wish you luck on that. There's uh, one last question from me then. So, yeah. 
Uh, and it's back to uh, your CV or your resume, as you would say in, in the US. Uh, a speechwriter for the Department of Homeland Security. <laughs> How does that work out? Yeah, well, um, I, I worked all through college full-time in, in different public relations and communications roles. So when I came out of, when I graduated from college, I had a lot of experience and I wanted to move to DC. I wanted to be in politics in DC. And so I inter- I remember I had 23 interviews over two days in July of 2005. And uh, one of the interviews was at the White House at the time, actually. And about a month later, I got a call from the White House Office of Personnel Management. And they um, asked me if I would be interested in being a speechwriter in the Department of Homeland Security. This is, I think, maybe one or two days later, Hurricane Katrina happened. Uh. And... I then later learned that the job was actually to be the speechwriter for the director of FEMA, um, the emergency management agency. And so um, literally, I remember emailing at the time, the White House press secretary, Scott McClellan, I emailed him and said, hey, should I take this job? And he was like, I think that would be really substantive. So I ended up taking the job. Brownie, were you Brownie's spokesman then? Well, here, yeah, so here's what happened. I was driving from Austin where I went to college to DC. And while on the drive, Michael Brown was forced to resign. And so I started, by the time I started, I started with his, his successor, which is a guy named David Paulson, who was the, he was the, the U.S. fire chief. Um, so, so I, yeah, I never worked with Michael Brown. I, um, I worked with his replacement. So I started, I literally started two weeks after Katrina. It's been really great talking to you, uh, Joe. We really appreciate your time for talking to us on how I got here this week. Thanks so much for having me. Okay. Uh, thank you, everybody, for tuning in. You've been listening to another episode of How I Got Here. That's Mozio and Focuswire, as I said earlier. Weekly podcast where we interview the entrepreneurs and innovators in travel, tourism, and hospitality. If this is your first visit to our podcast, please subscribe at the usual places. That's uh, Apple uh, Apple Podcasts, uh, Google Podcasts, iTunes, all those kind of places. So uh, make sure you do that. Leave us a review. And as always, thanks so much for tuning in. And thanks again to Joe from David and I. And we'll see you all next time. Thanks for listening to the How I Got Here podcast. We'll be back next week with more inside stories behind startups and innovation in travel and transportation. Check mozio.com slash move for a complete write-up of the highlights of every podcast with translations into five languages. And get your daily dose of news on the digital travel economy by subscribing to the newsletter at focuswire.com. See you next week.